Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. This is your host, Shadi Nabhan. I am a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And as you know, on this podcast, we have a variety of healthcare shows that tackle various things of interest to listeners and viewers. And today I am hosting Steve Stavs, who uh, you should check out his website, stevestavs.com. He is a pro biohacker and health futurist, and you are going to uh, have to listen to the show so you know what that actually means. Steve is considered one of Africa's leading professional coaches and internationally trained biohackers. Over the past 20 years, he has been interviewed on radio and television and has been invited to speak at a host of international forums and conventions. He has lectured to over 10,000 professionals in the medical health and wellness industries and continues to connect with his audiences, empowering them with knowledge, skills, and practical tools to become courageously equipped to live a life of thriving, according to his website. I got to meet Steve when he interviewed me on his uh, podcast, Made to Thrive, to talk about my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. And I've asked him to come on on the show so we could talk about what is a probiohacker, what is a health futurist. Um, You know, Steve uh, has a lot of interest and he practices Chinese Eastern medicine. So what is really the truth about Chinese and Eastern medicine? Uh, What is the data behind some of the interventions that he recommends to patients and the folks that he sees? And how do we actually merge the gap and really uh, provide this connection between Chinese Eastern medicine and Western medicine? I think this is of interest. This is important because many patients and families ask about these kinds of interventions. These interventions are not really pharmacologic. They could be diet, exercise, and things of that nature. They are really important for us to discuss. So I've asked Steve to come on Healthcare Unfiltered to talk to us about some of these things, about his background, how he ended up where he is currently, and what he recommends for the people that he sees every day. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and as usual, you have to let me know what you think about the podcast, this one, and other episodes. You can do that by reaching me on my website, www.shadinabhan.com, by direct messaging me on Twitter, at shadinabhan, on Instagram, chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered, or by emailing me at shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Don't forget to demand your um, Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. If you are a loyal listener, you will have to email me and at least tell me that, uh, you know, you subscribe to the show and rated the show, which you can do on all podcast outlets. I appreciate your support. And if you are supportive of my work, check out my book, Toxic Exposure, about the first three trials uh, that I testified in against Monsanto. And I was an expert witness on behalf of the patients. All of these initial three trials were won by the plaintiffs, by the patients themselves. Check that out, and you can find that on all um, uh, book outlets, wherever you consume books. Without further ado, Steve Stabs on Healthcare Unfiltered. Steve, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. Thanks, Charlie. Just such a privilege to walk out life with you and just really get the truth out that a lot of people need in this very confusing world. 
It is indeed. Can I just confess? I have to confess to, I think probably my listeners or folks that know me, they know this. I have to say, I would love to acquire your accent somehow, because I think there's immediate sophistication with this. Anything but the American accent, I would say, <laughs> you know, if we say, for example, British accent, Australian accent, South African accent, just you get this immediate way of, you know, basically you, I'm sold in anything you're going to say yeah. right now. Yeah, well, it's good because I mean, my listeners, 40% of my listeners on the Made to Thrive show are in the US. So we're growing nicely there and things are working out and we get approached weekly on getting guests on the show. So I love the US. I've been at least 25 times. My mentor's in Fort Myers, uh, Florida. He's been my mentor for the last 13 years. And it's been just such a privilege to go in the US where I really believe teaching is at another level. They really want to empower you know, physicians across all disciplines to really... Uh, uh, get knowledge and then apply the knowledge in their practices. Well, uh, next time you're in the U.S., you're stopping by Chicago. That's not negotiable. Steve, let, let's just start by getting to know you a little bit more. I mm. mean, obviously, I got a chance to to know you a little bit more, but my listeners okay. probably don't. So um, just a little bit about you. Um, I mean, where you've been, where you are, and how did you end up where you are currently? Cool. Yeah, well, let me give you a little title because I, I know people like little memes, but as a physician for 24 years now, I'm sick and tired of seeing sick, chronic, disease-ridden people. And, and it sounds like an oxymoron, uh, but I am really want to emphasize preventative care. And that's where it's taken to my end point. And, and then I'll, from the very end point of where I am now, the backstory is I was in medical school in the 90s and uh, I was in the physiology lab and uh, I saw this guy do this VO2 max and I looked at his body, I looked at mine and we looked totally different. And this guy was a running machine, lean, huge lean muscle mass and just in incredible condition. And I was carrying way too much weight as a little Greek Cypriot boy that uh, uh, was born in South Africa, but parents who came from Cyprus and just overfed me with food. You know, when you're happy, you ate. When you're sad, you ate. When you were sad, you you drank. When you're happy, you drank. It was just food. It was just celebration. And it was wonderful. We lived in the moment, but there was no understanding of health and wellness and the future with regards to chronic disease. And from that moment in the physiology lab, when I looked at that VO2 max, I said, I really need to do something now to change my physique, to change the, the ability for me to perform mentally and physically. And I started using heart rate and there was this little polar just started then. And uh, I looked at my heart rate when I ate late at night, I'd wear the strap and I'd check the things at night before I slept and in the morning and when I started exercising. And I started the journey of health optimization using heart rate in the 90s. And I slowly worked out what fasting did. This was way before fasting was in vogue and you know, this huge fad. I looked at, you know, the paleo diet, the ketogenic diet, uh, contacted uh, Tim Noakes, uh, Professor Tim Noakes here. What was and, your goal, uh, though? Like when you were exploring this, you were trying like to lose weight, increase endurance. Like what were you trying to achieve? I lose weight. You know, I was 20 kgs overweight, at least in terms of body fat, or at least 20 kgs of fat uh, and just sluggish, you know, you know, the medical school library late at night battling to you know really concentrate and i had a lot of potential uh, growing up academically i never realized that potential just because of a, a poor diet uh, was you know frequently exercising in fact i was a, a provincial tennis player or a state tennis player and i had a actually had a, a scholarship to go to university in the states but 
I just didn't perform like I, I, I knew I could. And I saw different people at medical school that were in far better condition than me. And, and that was the thing that just dropped. And I said, now's the time to take personal accountability of my health. So, so you went to medical school. Yeah, in the 90s, in, yeah. In, in um, I, I don't know if in folks... In South Africa, yeah. Yeah, I was going to make yeah. sure folks know. Yeah. And then did you... Um, specialize after this you did just it was general internal mass like what uh, did you do afterwards i started with uh, and became a physical therapist uh, they call it a physiotherapist yeah at medical school finished then realized that the, there were limitations in physical therapy uh and i you know started in practice and then found out about dry needling which is a neuromuscular skeletal technique started studying that then started studying acupuncture started doing courses on acupuncture and then realized the limitations just with Western medicine and my own physique and my own health optimization journey. And then decided to study Chinese medicine, which I did abroad in the US and the UK. Came back here, got registered as a doctor of Chinese medicine and started functional medicine training in 2006. So that was my journey. Became a physician of uh, natural medicine and Chinese medicine and, and been doing that since in practice. So I think for folks that that don't that don't know what that means when we say Chinese medicine or Eastern medicine versus Western medicine, um, what what are we? Can you dumb it down a little bit for us and just tell us what we are saying? Are we saying we don't take drugs? We don't take medicine? Are we saying we add to current medicine? Like what what does it mean? Why mm. would I come to see you as a doctor in Chinese medicine? I guess. Well, it's. I think if people are listening now, it's really going to an MD in the States, but someone who's based in China, where there are Chinese medicine schools, where there are assessments. You do a, uh, an assessment based on a lot of research and science. Now, a lot of people say Chinese medicine doesn't have research. University of Beijing has a significant amount of research and, and data, but this medicine is 5,000 years old. It Most of it was by empirical evidence, you know, trial and error looking at different ways to treat disease. And what I love about Chinese medicine is the initial first doctor of Chinese medicine used to pay him every single month to keep you well. You'd come check Charlie if you're eating the right things, doing the right exercise, your Tai Chi, your Qi Gong, you'd check on what plants you, what teas you were having. As soon as you got sick, you stopped paying him. Now it was in his interest to keep you well and not have you sick. Now that was a thing that came on, a light bulb moment to say, if we're going to prevent disease, we need a different model. Now, chronic disease was just escalating exponentially. You know that. You know what's happened in probably the last 25 years at least. But I love the model of keeping people well, keeping them in homeostatic balance, and looking at certain sort of variables and factors, whether it's tongue diagnosis, looking at the tongue, or getting a pulse diagnosis, looking at someone's pulse and making a diagnosis. And a migraine patient that comes to you as a doctor of Chinese medicine, there are 10, maybe 20, maybe 30 different ways you can treat them. And so you look at the root cause of disease when it comes to the symptomatology that you're presented with from your patient. So I love the, the understanding and the philosophy. I mean, we can get into the five elemental theory. I think it's going to be sort of getting people into the weeds but Chinese medicine is really based on root cause disease. It links very much to functional medicine at looking at things that cause certain patterns. For instance, high blood pressure can come from many different causes. It can come from wind. It can come from liver fire. It can come from phlegm. And it can come from these, uh, these patterns of disease that can cause a similar 
symptom. And that's what I love about Chinese medicine. Most people that you see in your clinic are folks who have an actual disease or are they healthy people asking you for prevention from um, developing particular problem? Like they come in and say, you know, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. What can I do prevention? Or is it like a mix of both? It's a mix of both. You know, I've been in practice 24 years now. And so I've seen a lot of chronic disease and people that have not done well with allopathic medicine and traditional medicine or who want to combine the two. But I'm really moving to preventative care with regards to my brand, Made to Thrive, my coaches, health coaches, and health consultants online. At the end of the day, we are not going to beat chronic disease. We're losing the war against chronic disease. If we don't look at prevention, we will lose the war against Alzheimer's. We will lose it against cancer, I believe. We will lose it against cardiovascular disease. There are not enough physicians, both in South Africa and abroad, that can address um, the population. Now, maybe if you've got a lot of money and a lot of resources and you're very wealthy, yeah, you'll get the right care. But I think we've got to look at it at a global perspective. There are not enough physicians to treat the epidemic of chronic disease that's happening in Western societies and modern-day cities. I mean, most people, at least in the U.S., um, they, they say that um, there are certain elements of Chinese medicine or Eastern medicine that, you know, they have reasonable data out there to hang your hat on. They would say there's yeah. good data on acupuncture, for example, that it could prevent, let's say, nausea, vomiting, and sometimes pain in patients diagnosed with cancer and undergoing chemotherapy. Yeah. Um, nobody would argue that massage therapy is good, uh, maintaining exercise and balanced diet and having uh, yeah. a, a proper weight is, is, is helpful. But for most of us, uh, and as an oncologist, I'm speaking like we, we feel obviously combining both is usually the ideal thing. I mean, there are certain you know, cancer, to cure certain cancers, you you need chemotherapy, you may need radiation therapy, sometimes you need transplant, things of that nature. That doesn't mean you cannot have something in addition to that. Are you from the school of thought that these are complementary approaches? Are you proposing that some of these approaches could replace entirely the Western medicine? Yeah, look, I think once again, it's always a unique bespoke patient and a patient's got to make the decision in terms of what type of treatment process and protocol they need. Uh, in the US, I find they are far more collaborative and you can find different disciplines within one clinic and they seem to play to their teammates. Uh, in South Africa, it's more conservative with regards to complementary medicine and working with oncologists. You know, I've got oncologists in the city. I've been in practice for a long time and it's difficult to get a lot of referrals from them. They only want sort of specific things. They almost, you know, prescribe what treatments you can do. They are apprehensive to look at the research on the use of herbs to treat cancer. And obviously that's your discipline, but at the end of the day, I think it's a collaborative approach. I think it's a team approach. I think you can come together and uh, give a patient a really, um, I think, holistic, uh, you know, process and treatment. And I think you've got to be a very humble sort of Western physician. Like I said to you, uh, probably oncologists and neurologists are probably the two disciplines or specialties that I really, really struggle with with regards to including complementary physicians like myself. Uh, even when the research is there, they, they really don't want to look at it. And I see a lot of pain patients. We use a lot of platelet-rich plasma in my clinic. There's a lot of uh, indication for that. There's a lot of research for that. In fact, the Chinese started injecting 
human placental cells and umbilical cords. I think in the early 1900s, they didn't know there were stem cells in there, but they saw the benefit of it. It was empirical evidence. And one of their tenets is blood, you know, as a foundational um, pillar of their, of their medicine. And if you get blood flowing and you get these blood into certain areas, you can help a lot of patients. So I think the the Western medicine, it's not a war, it's to come together, but they're a lot more apprehensive to use complementary uh, physicians. I think I think part of the apprehension uh, is, um, you know, the lack of data that people feel comfortable that these additional interventions might help and also they will not hurt. I think, for example, when it comes to certain complementary uh, approaches, let's say you mentioned herbs and other things, we don't always know how they might interact with the chemotherapy that the patients are on. And yeah. there's always the concern that such interaction might actually affect side effects, may cause problems with the white cells, with the platelets, and, and things of that nature. I, I, I think that's really where... Uh, where the the fear is uh, in terms of uh, uh, approach. So, which is goes back to you, Steve. Like when you look at what type of data do you evaluate to assure that whatever intervention you're recommending is going to help uh, the patients and uh, is not going to cause any unintended consequences. Well, look, I mean, I don't want to speak specifically in cancer because I don't see a lot of cancer, you know, on a daily basis. But I can tell you meta-analyses of many um, papers with regards to regenerative medicine, the use of um, platelet-rich plasma, the use of ozone that's been around since, I think, the 1840s. There's some really good research on that, um, RCTs on that, randomized controlled trials on that. And so I, I think there's enough data out there. In fact, there's a... I say to patients because a lot of physicians say, oh, there's no data, there's no data, there's no data. If you just look and you want to look and you want to be open to it, I really believe you can find that. And I send a lot of my my, my patients and clients the data because I think it is important. Having said that on that one side, at the end of the day, I think uh, one of the tendencies do no harm and, and using things like um, prototherapy, dextrose, ozone, PRP in my world has had limited side effects. I mean, I think we've done over 29,000 sessions. We've never had a single long-term side effect from any of our treatments. So I think that's also important to understand that um, there's a lot of things that physicians will use, uh, Western physicians that don't have all the data there. Uh, but it's be, it's regarded as standard of care. And it, it just look at what's happened now with COVID and the vaccine, early trials, this thing wasn't tested. I'm not an anti-vax, I'm not a pro-vax. My kids have been vaccinated, but the data wasn't there. Yet we saw this as an emergency season to use vaccines where they were not tried and tested. And, and now we're seeing some significant uh, side effects from this. I mean, I'm seeing myocarditis, pericarditis, like I've never seen in 24 years. I'm seeing shingles, post-hepatic neurologists, like I've never seen before. I'm seeing Bell's palsies, trigeminal. I'm, I'm on the ground seeing these patients that have been with me for many, many years. Um, this is not hearsay. This is not, you know, blowing out of proportion. We had Peter McCulloch on the podcast, uh, the cardiologist for over 40 years, talk about this in his practice. Uh, the numbers are there. And unfortunately, when Western medicine, when it does suit them, Charlie, to use something that's in sort of experimental phase, 
you know, they use it. And so I think we must sort of play it fairly on both sides of, of the seesaw. I think one of the things that you mentioned that are worth commenting on, uh, in my opinion, is that there's a lot of things that we do that are not always supported by prospective, randomized, controlled trials. Um, in a, a lot of what we do in medicine, frankly, is not. Some is and some is not. And some of this goes to clinical judgment, experience, and, and a lot of other sources of data that might lead you to decide on an intervention or not. Uh, you are right that, um, you know, Eastern medicine does actually get a little bit more of the bad rap type of thing compared to Western medicine, where the same standards don't always apply. I'll, I, I believe some of uh, that is uh, indeed true. Um, I do believe that the collaboration between the entire team members taking care of the patient is important. And obviously, patients are very interested in non-traditional approaches because, uh, because of that. I want yeah. to talk specifically about uh, diet and, and food and things like that, because I, I was looking at your website, which we are going to put uh, with the podcast notes, and I'd like mm. you to uh, comment on that, uh, Steve, uh, so folks uh, know what that means. So you do say you are a pro biohacker and a health futurist. So tell us what a pro biohacker is and what's a health yeah. futurist is. But Charlie, let me just close the last loop. And obviously, you know, I'm registered as a physician. That's the part of my life that I do almost on a daily basis, although made to thrive where my pro biohacking and health future sort of title falls under. So I've moved into space in terms of preventative healthcare and looking at patients and looking using functional medicine to prevent disease. Uh, we've we've pegged ourselves at high achievers, um, executives, middle management to really try and look at their 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 bloods, their genetics, the inflammatory markers, the amino acid markers, the essential fatty acid markers, look at their body compositions, uh, measure their sleep uh, with sleep trackers. So that's where pro-biohacking and, and, and being a health futurist is, and that falls under that domain. So just to make sure that people understand the difference um, and just to, to put the disclaimer on what we've said, it's not really medical advice at all. This is really to come together and and just give a background of where I've come from. So let me explain what a pro biohacker, professional biohacker, and I think it's important that people understand. I mean, it the sounded word like you're a spy for the CIA or something. You're like hacking <laughs> into my computer or something. <laughs> you sound like my wife, Jody. She says you've got to change the name. I said, you know, unfortunately, it, it's something that we are trying to make our own in Africa and to allow people to you know, understand the term. And I, I give an analogy of what a biohacker is, is, you know, Charlie, do you, you know, weigh yourself once a week or once a month? Uh, I I probably do it once a month. Okay, okay. I once should do it do more often, your... but, I, but I'm afraid of actually weighing myself, yeah. Steve. <laughs> do you check your blood pressure, Charlie? Unfortunately, I don't. Yeah, you don't. Okay, so you you're not you're not a great biohacker. <laughs> Do you check your temperature when you've got a fever? Uh, yes, if I have okay. a fever, if I feel a fever, okay. yes. Okay, um, good. I, I think my wife is probably more of a biohacker than me. Yeah. So anyone who takes measurements, you know, whether you your daily steps or you're checking your blood pressure, or you're checking temperature. Daily steps, I do. Daily steps, you go there, and so really, what it is biohacking, and I'll give you the definition 
is the art and science of assessing your internal environment, which is your body, and your external environment, which is where you live, move, and work, and then making the necessary changes that can optimize your mind, your body, and your soul. And so we, we look at humidity in the bedroom. We look at measuring possible mold toxicity, look at water quality, assessing that. So we look at anything that affects your system, whether it's your bloods. We do extensive functional medicine bloods. You know, I did my first lecture on vitamin D in 2007, 13 years later, people started realizing how important vitamin D was for immunity. Uh, and so a lot of this has been going on for a long time that people have been unaware of, you know, looking at zinc copper ratios that have been around for a long time. All of a sudden, people started taking zinc. And so there's a lot of things that have been going on for a long time that we're now incorporating and trying to teach people out there. Many of them do not have chronic disease. But we're trying to look at these before they become chronic disease. For example, I think there's a lot of research and meta-analysis showing that you can have insulin resistance up to 13 years before it does not, your insulin does not control your glucose and your HB alpha-1C is over 6.5%. Now, why should we wait 10 years, 5 years, 7 years when insulin fasting insulin is high? That would be a number to say, hang on, your fasting insulin is 15. Well, what are we going to do about it? Oh, your HP alpha 1C is fine. Your average medical doctor, your GP is going to look at you know, your fasting glucose, your HP alpha 1C, saying, fine, you're in check. But what about the fasting insulin and doing something before you become pre-diabetic and diabetic? That would be the art of biohacking is taking personal accountability, looking at the data points. And when I say to you, Charlie, how many hours of REM sleep did you get last night? Well, you know the number, you know how important that is, and you set the trend. It might not be the most accurate, these sleep trackers, but you can see a trend. So you say, okay, REM sleep is crucially important for cognitive functioning. And so let's try and optimize that as best as we can before we get the disease. We know that sleep is so important for many neurodegenerative conditions. The data clearly shows what happens when you don't get a lot of sleep, whether it's neurodegenerative conditions or cancer. So it's looking at all these data points, these variables, these factors, optimizing them to the best in order for you to prevent disease and to perform at your absolute best. Yeah, that is, um, you hit on a point of sleep, which is, uh, I have very poor sleep, so I I, yeah. I, I I can relate to the importance of it and, and the challenges. I think, I think what I'm, what I'm hearing, um, which is pretty intriguing, Steve, is that we have a lot of external factors that might impact diseases that we develop. You've commented, uh, which obviously we, we all know that there, who knows, right? I mean, we, we have a lot of uh, evidence that the environment and, and where we live sometimes could impact disease. Um, you mentioned a lot throughout uh, this episode, uh, chronic disease. What, what is, what, what's a chronic disease? I mean, like give us, I mean, I think you mentioned diabetes, you talked uh, migraines, but what, mm. I mean, is everything chronic disease? Like, I mean... Well, right because i mean hypertension is a chronic disease okay well, yeah when you talk about chronic disease what are you really alluding to i think to sort of four big categories that are killers that will affect your both your mortality one of these killers 
or your morbidity, how you feel, uh, and that would be cardiovascular disease, and that would include something um, like your cerebrovascular disease, like your stroke, hypertension would fall in there, cancer, neurodegenerative conditions, you know, dementia, and the subcategories of Alzheimer's, and then the last one, metabolic disease, where you would have diabetes or any metabolic disorders there. And so those are the things that I sort of put them in those four categories that helps me. I think one of those four is generally going to kill most people uh, with regards to chronic disease. And so that's how I think about it. And when I take, uh, you know, talking about health futurist, I didn't really finish that point. But if you can forecast and then backcast, you know, what do you want to look your last 10 years, your marginal decade? What do you want that to look like? You know, do you want to be able to get a pick up your grandchildren off the floor? Do you want to be able to get off the floor by yourself? Would you like to walk your dog? Would you like to travel by yourself and be able to put the suitcase in the overhead luggage compartment? You know, So I do a lot of this forecasting with my clients. I call them clients because they're often executives or CEOs that come to me and say, look, I want to have good health and you know wellness and I want to perform at my best for a very long time. And so we forecast and then we say, well, what do we need to do to reverse engineer that process? What do I need to do now? Well, I need to do a DEXA scan or I need to do body composition to know what my lean muscle mass is. That's a crucial factor with regards to strength and making sure that I don't fall in my last decade, making sure that I'm mobile. We know how important it is from a step point of view, how many steps you can take, how mobile you can be. So that's how I see chronic disease, health futurists. What can we prevent uh, now, today, that'll prevent chronic disease and prevent us suffering in the long term? You know, you lose your mind, you lose your life. I'm just about to have Dale Bredesen uh, on the podcast and now talking about the end of Alzheimer's. What can you do now to prevent neurodegenerative conditions? What tests can you do now to understand your risk and your hazard ratio? So these, I think, are important. And, and I'm not wanting to make clients doctors, but I think we need to empower people with more information that they can apply. And once they start applying and seeing the changes, I think we can change society's health and wellness. Do you feel that there are certain things that are just simply not reversible? I mean, I think, honestly, we all would love not to age if we can. I Sign mm. me up for that anytime. I, I, I hate the fact I'm aging. I think mm. we all do. Is it inevitable? I mean, I think when you're, I mean, you know, we all know about the rare 80 year old who ran a marathon. Don't get me wrong. And I actually have an episode I taped on geriatric oncology. Mm -hmm. And so, so, and I realize that when we say age, just the number, it's a nice statement. Mm. But you know, you are not going to be when you're 80, you're just not going to be the same when you're 25. So is it, is it fair to say that you do your best, but there are sometimes just certain natural processes in life and aging that just simply you can't reverse. Or am I just being too uh, <laughs> too simplistic? I think uh, I think we don't have to get old, but I think we do age, and I think there's a difference. And so, what I want I want to be doing in my marginal decade, I want to be running. I want to be gymming, I want to be exercising, I want to be traveling on my own, I want to be doing podcasts, I want to be talking on stages, I want my cognitive ability to be great. I mean, I've been through 14 books already in the first six months. For me, that's too little, but I want to be hopefully be reading at least 30, 40 books. I want my memory. My memory has actually improved significantly every single year. 
it has improved. I've worked really, really hard at, at brain function and mind function and doing exercises for my brain. And uh, so I think, I think you got two sides there that you're saying, I do think aging is a process that we cannot reverse at this stage. Although you've got people like David Sinclair and Brian Johnson now who are saying that, you know, age reversal and they age far less biochemically every year than they do uh, chronologically, which is an interesting thought. I, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're quite far from that. But I do believe we can have significant quality of life. The question is for you, Charlie, what do you want to be doing for the majority of your life, both mentally and physically? How do you see yourself? If you can picture that clearly, write that down, document that, and then work backwards from that to say, okay, well, what do I need to do now? If you carry on not having good sleep and you don't want to measure your REM sleep and your deep sleep, there are going to be consequences for inaction. There are going to be consequences for not reaching the 8 to 10 or 12,000 steps, I believe. There's going to be consequences for not getting most of your vitamin D via the sun. There's going to be consequences for not checking your ferritin and your copper status. There's going to be consequences for not understanding your vitamin D. I mean, I've seen things this week when I've looked at people's labs, I've been absolutely shocked. People, and I mean, you're a hematologist. I've seen people with ferritin of three, four, five, not one, many. We, we, we just, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, and we discussed this in the podcast, fibrinogen levels that are double what they should be. I, I'm seeing things from a lab perspective that, I haven't seen in many, many years. So, and unfortunately, our kids now, our teenagers are becoming more overweight. There's more chronic disease. There's more mental ill health. I mean, I think one in three American uh, teenagers uh, consider suicide. It's something scary like that. So if we don't do something with regards to people taking personal accountability, and if I have to leave one thing that people remember, is people need to take an active role in their health their wellness, and their performance. If they do not do that, only 10% of them will get away with it genetically. That's as simple as it is. 90% I'm convinced is epigenetic. 10% is genetic. If you think you're one of those 10% genetic, that's going to just the person who smokes and drinks and does whatever they want to and grossly overweight and doesn't develop any chronic disease, then you can take that, but that's a high risk. That's a high-risk sort of action that you want to do with lifestyle. Yeah. And uh, I look at my seven-year-old daughter, Charlie, and um, I am I am overwhelmed with emotion just because of the concern I have for a generation that is growing up with so much mental disease, and, and that results in physical disease. And uh, I, I need to make statements. I need to get out there, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying no, to collaborate and, and, with and, people and like you. I guess it's, it's, it's fair, I think, <clears throat> what – um, and I want to focus a little bit on nutrition in, in the last segment, but I, I think yeah. it's fair what you're mentioning. Um, I guess what I'm what I'm suggesting is that not everything is reversible through these interventions. I mean, look, we we can make we can discuss that mental uh, issues uh, for children uh, is social media and yeah. Facebook and Instagram and sometimes bullying in school and things of that nature um, sure. and it's really the pressure of society to always look good and thin and beautiful and it's really not always because of what you eat and and, and sure, all of course. Now, this obviously leads to your lack of sleep also when you have anxiety and depression so i mean it's everything all together and i think there are so many things we could do to obviously help people uh certainly 
but uh, we have to realize it's always multifactorial. And no, so absolutely. And I think your question is right, and I think your question is wrong. Is everything reversible? No, but maybe we should be focusing on are most things reversible? Yeah. What can yes. we reverse? What can we yeah. reverse? Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah. to that, to that, and let's talk about diet a little bit. I mean, you, you've spent a lot of time. Um, researching this and and doing sure. this and obviously you've been successful because you look very fit uh <laughs> compared to obviously when you were trying to lose weight back in the day sure. so what have you learned in terms of diet and chronic disease and mm. um because there's so much out there right there's a sure. ve veggie diet there's like vegan diet vegetarian diet keto <laughs> diet don't yeah. eat red meat, eat red meat. You can't have sugar, you can have sugar. Don't have ice cream. And do yeah. not destroy my dreams and tell me I cannot mm. have French fries because that's like a no, that is like, a, there's a red line here, Steve. I got to have some of my French fries <laughs> once a month. I got to have my French fries. Yeah. Quality of life. <laughs> yeah, look, I think people, if you're listening and even for yourself, if you want to picture a tree and there's a low hanging fruit, uh, one of the most simple ways to change your health and your wellness is the low-hanging fruit of changing your diet, but it is the hardest. Something that is simple is not necessarily easy, and I found that it is the hardest fruit to pull off that tree for many reasons. So the psycho-emotional factors to food. You know, when people come for weight loss, I really say to them, this is probably the most difficult if that's the only symptom that you're presenting with. But you know, Charlie's, you know, French fries and Charlie's ice cream and what Charlie does with the family is is going to be based on many factors. Well, well, let's look at your HSCRP. Let's look at your REM sleep. You know, when I put people on a sleep tracker, they're like, oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. What's happened to my sleep? It's not great. So when I sh teach them about HSCRP and interleukin-6 and interleukin-10 and look at the inflammatory factors. And I say, look, these things are causing issues in your body. These are the data points. And so I like to be very objective with most of my clients. There are personalities that develop significant issues with looking at the dates so like orthorexia. But for most of people that come to me, they're really open to looking at the data and saying, look, well, what can we do? My diet, two meals a week, probably out of 14 to 16 meals, I let my hair down. I let go a little bit. I'll have a little bit of dark chocolate or have a bit of a pudding. Uh, so I, I realize that that is important for people to sort of have that space where they're not considering the whole time what they're putting in their mouths. But overall, most of the things that I look at, whether it's vegetarian, vegan, keto, carnivore, we look at the numbers. We look at the objective points and have a look at it. In fact, one of the biggest variables and levers is not what you eat, but when you eat. And Session Panda's work has shown this significantly with regards to circadian rhythm. So we, we talk about food, and I think it's five simple, is what, when, how in terms of how much, which I think is very, very important, okay? Uh, where eating together has significant, significant health benefits. I think people eating alone causes significant issues. So uh, where, uh, and, then, and then the who as well. So... I think, you know, we make a practice, I was just talking to you, is that we're going to be, um, we sit together as a family. You know, where do we do it? We do it at home. It's relaxed. We we talk about the day, the benefits of that. Uh, there's research on that, how important that is, who we eat with, you know. And so I, I think if you look at those levers, uh, you know, the when, the what, the how, 
Uh, and also why we eat. I think that's another important point as I'm talking to you now. We, we don't eat to survive. We eat to thrive. And, and that helps you make choices. If I want to wake up, and I think we mentioned this before, we've got an acronym called TGIM. Thank God it's Monday. If I want to wake up on Monday and change people's lives and impact the world with my calling and my purpose, I need to make sure that the diet that I'm eating the exercise that I'm doing, the sleep that I'm having, my relationships are in the best possible uh, place in order for me to live out that purpose and that calling. And that's a big part of people's problems is they're too concerned about happiness and not concerned about contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction. These human uh, um, emotional feelings that we have that are so important to people thriving. Have you Have you noticed in your research there's a particular diet that is most uh, suitable to prevent or to help in chronic disease. Um, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet. These are the two things mm. at least are very common. I've taped a couple of podcasts on these yeah. uh, in the past, but uh, I'm curious your thoughts um, and, and whether you follow a particular diet, maybe take us through mm a day in the mm. life of Steve in terms of what you eat and, and, and how you decide in terms of your diet? Well, look, I mean, I've seen, I mean, I've done over 140,000 treatments, seen thousands and thousands of patients. And once again, I think there are two camps when it comes to food is what is your, your glucose uh, uh, utilization? So what is um, your fasting insulin? What is your HOMA index? You know, what is your HB alpha 1C? When I put a CGM on your continuous glucose monitor, what happens? You know, to you. So, uh, once again, I don't ever try and convert a vegetarian or a vegan uh, to become someone who's eating meat. Having said that, I would say someone who's following generally a paleo diet, uh, who's eating nutrient dense food. I mean, I think you understand the process, all the process, whether you're on vegan. I mean, a lot of vegans come to me, they're eating significant amounts of processed foods. Uh, I do find that vegans and vegetarians, they need a lot of supplementation. I do a lot of amino acid testing they they're lacking arginine they're lacking lysine so they might need more supplementation so i think a generally a paleo diet has has worked well for my for my patients and clients over the over the time being but it has to be very nutrient dense so i think if we look at it overall my life I'll, you know, wake up, let me give you this example. Uh, I fasted last night. I had two meals in the day and then fasted last night, woke up, uh, went and trained, then had uh, five eggs, uh, pasture-raised eggs. At lunch, I had a salad. Uh, there was chicken in the salad, uh, some cranberries, some nuts, uh, olive oil. Uh, and then tonight, my wife's going to be making a meal. We have fish and fish often at night. It'll be salad. It'll be vegetables. Uh, I've got to be careful just with my glucose uh, because all four of my grandparents were diabetic. So I have a proclivity to, you know, having uh, prediabetes. And that's, I've got to watch what happens with my insulin and my glucose. Uh, and so I think, I mean, without, you know, looking at those factors and variables, uh, a paleo diet not too much red meat uh, because we know there's some significant problems that have people have with saturated fats. 
the saturated fat should not be vilified at all, I think. But I think once again, looking at some testing of saturated fats, uh, my wife, when she has too much saturated fats, her apple lipoprotein B just really increases significantly, which is a which is a concern for me. Particle number and size of, of LDL is, I think, a very important factor for cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative conditions, especially if you know your APOE uh, genotype. So it's very complicated. But at the end of the day, we've got glucose, which I've spoken about, and inflammatory markers. And I think those two would be very, very important sort of areas of discussion when it comes to someone's um, uh, nutrition. The other piece that is maybe worth talking about a little bit is vitamin D, because you comment on that a lot, uh, at least in the world of cancer. Um, um, and there has been a lot of studies published um, trying to add vitamin D to a particular intervention versus the intervention alone. And, and so far, the addition of vitamin D to whatever intervention we are doing has not shown to improve the outcomes compared with the intervention alone. So um, while vitamin D is easily replaced with supplements or uh, things of that mm -hmm. nature, it just has not shown in randomized trials to really add substantial uh, benefit. You commented on vitamin D a couple of times, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to, I mean, it's easy to tell somebody, hey, your vitamin D is low, just take a vitamin D supplements. And, you know, both mm. of my parents are on it and 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 it's fine. Mm. But I think there's a difference between saying, yeah, take some supplements to replace vitamin D versus if you do that, you are going to live longer. Or if you do yeah. that, you're not going to get cancer. You see what I'm saying? I got you. I got you totally, you know, and, and I think uh, you might be able to comment on the cancer research more than I would know. But if we look at autoimmune disorders and looking at uh, the Scandinavian countries, the further you away, move away from the equator, you know, the, the greater your, 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 well, the lower your vitamin D is related to, and I know there's autoimmune research on this, what happens with low vitamin D. Uh, so I think there are some conditions where we look at these things, vitamin D, uh, osteoporosis, there's, there's literature on that now. Uh, in South Africa, we would look at labs. If you're 30 NGs per ml or lower, then you, you have a significant risk of you know causing osteopenia and osteoporosis. So there are people that come into this week, the vitamin D was 10, 11, 12 NGs per ml. It's a significant problem. Never mind getting to 30. I mean, under 30 now, I think there was a lot of research now on immune function with regards to vitamin D, making sure that it's above 30. When I started functional medicine, the range was 30 to 100. We used to keep patients at 60 NGs per ml. Uh, so I, I think if we had a look at, at a deep dive, maybe not on cancer, but on many other conditions, if we look at the Sardinians and look at those blue zones areas, I think we're going to find um, that um, their vitamin D levels are at a significant higher level because they're spending a lot more time outside and maybe they're having a lot more oily fish that got vitamin D in or grass-fed butter. Uh, that's my uh, sort of animals that eating like out in the pasture. What I do know is empirically, I've changed many, many people's lives from an immune function perspective by improving their vitamin D. Kids that used to get consistently sick uh, and adults that used to get consistently sick, getting that vitamin D up has been uh, empirically very, very beneficial. The two last questions I have. One, you mentioned the ozone. Um, I think that's interesting because I know a couple mm. of people who are actually undergoing 
such treatment, ozone therapy, and and frankly, in all fairness, one of them is improving. Um, yeah. So I'm curious. I mean, folks probably who are listening to my show, they're probably not familiar with what you're talking about. Uh, if you can mm. comment on that a little bit, and when do you use that? So in our clinic, we use ozone in the form of an injectable. So we inject O3. We've got a oxygen tank, and then a catalytic converter that converts O2 to O3. We draw it up in a syringe and we inject it into joints, into trigger points, uh, ligaments, and uh, really beneficial to help with the electron transport chain. You know, I had maybe a really good person to have is Dr. Frank Schellenberger, who was the president of the American Association or Academy of Ozone Therapy for many years. I think he's been doing ozone for 30 years. But the, what we use it, where we use it here is uh, with pain. And there's probably very, very few modalities so like helps, that I've seen. It helps pain. It's for pain. Helps yeah. pain. You know, I don't see the cancers and, and do, be doing ozone therapy or that. Uh, we do some rectal insufflation, which I must say has really helped a lot of RBS patients, RBD patients. Uh, so we do that. We do some through the ears, um, ear ozone really helps a lot of sinus patients. There's not a lot of research on that. Although the Russians have been doing, I think, ozone since the 1840s, the, the research I think is limited with regards to systemic diseases in terms of joints, mass base. There's a lot of research showing that has been very, very beneficial. The Italians have been using it for a long time. The Russians have been using it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think a very, very beneficial modality, very, very safe uh, and uh, very affordable. And lastly, organic food. Uh, we mm. hear a lot about organic food. Uh, mm. And I think, you know, me and you talked on the on the show about my opinion, but uh, um, mm. I, I'd like to hear your thoughts about Organic food today in 2023, uh, is this something that you only eat organic? You advise people only eat organic. Um, sometimes availability of organic food is not really easy. Some folks consider that a luxury, frankly, getting organic sure. food. Prices could be more expensive. And there are folks who would say that your organic food today is different than organic food 10 years ago, even, even so. So what are your mm. thoughts based on your research and studies about organic food? Look, I think the most important is they've got to do the basics. If they're going to be having processed foods, I think the most important is nutrient-dense foods, whether it's organic or not organic. I think that's important for people to realize. People often ask me that question, and they're filling their pantries and their kitchens with all processed foods. They need to try and eliminate those out of the diet, which cause significant issues. So that's number one. If they're able to do that, then let's talk about the organic and the inorganic, because I think or not organic. I think your 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 meat or animal produce, if you're going to be having that, I think that's very, very important uh, to try as best as you can to have pasture raised and pasture finished. Organics is sort of a tricky word, but to really look at these animals, what they are eating, because I think what they're eating really affects the inflammation that it can possibly cause within your own system. So, you know, how many, you know, what is the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3, you know, of that cow, of that beef, of that lamb, that you're going to be consuming it's depending on what they're eating if they're going to be eating gmo corn it's going to significantly affect the quality of that meat having said that i still think if you are eating nutrient dense food and not processed and packaged food not with a label i think that's the most important thing you can do i think it's far more important to get rid of the processing get rid of the packaged foods get rid of with anything that's got a label on it does it grow out of the ground? Does it grow on a tree? You know, does it walk around on the earth? 
ask those questions. And I think if you ask those questions, you're going to be in a far better place. I mean, there's so many studies with like the SAD, the standard American diet. Most of the time, people feel incredibly better on a vegan diet because they've cut out the processed things or they feel better on a carnivore diet because they cut out all the processed foods. You know, they feel better on a paleo or Mediterranean diet because they've cut off, you know, all the processed foods. So I think that's the most important that people can take away from. And, you know, I'm a huge believer that what's caused a lot of uric acid issues, what's caused a lot of sickness and disease is liquid calories in the form of sodas and fruit juices. Uh, So that's something I really try and get my clients and my patients off first is this prolific amount of sugar sugar and fructose that really floods your liver and causes significant issues uh, in the system. You know, even with my daughter, when she wants to let go, I'd rather let her have a chocolate biscuit than have a, a soda because it's very difficult to have a lot of chocolate biscuits compared to the calories and the quickness yeah. uh, into your system that causes, and we know NAFLFD is causing a lot of significant problems all over the world. I think it's going to be the highest amount of liver transplants, NAFLFD. So those are the basics, you know, I, I think uh, can't reiterate how you, important it is to eliminate things. Steve, before I let you go, anything mm. I should have asked you that I completely was off mark, did not ask you, would like to leave listeners with? I think if people listening out there, your purpose and your community, the people that are around you and who you serve, the people that you trust, uh, the people that you're going to trust with your parents or your children, uh, I think is crucially important for your health and wellness. Uh, your purpose, being able to articulate that and, and knowing what your purpose is, that you can stand up uh, on a Monday morning and say, thank God it's Monday and not wait for weekends and not wait for holidays. These two important internal drivers are, are fundamentally important. In fact, it's where I go um, because people need to spend time, resources, and work and have an active participation in their health. So purpose and community being the greatest drivers to help people adopt a very healthy lifestyle. Steve Stavs, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered, talking about Chinese Eastern medicine, pro-biohacker and health futures. Thank you so much for coming on. Now, what a privilege and just want to wish you all the best and thank you for having me on the show. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I appreciate your support. And I really would love to know what you think about this podcast and other podcast episodes. And you know how to reach me. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan. Follow me on there as well on Instagram. And don't forget to reach out and let me know what you think and provide any opinions or ideas. I appreciate Steve Stavs being on today's podcast, his candor, his genuity, and sharing his thoughts. Whatever you think about Chinese and Eastern medicine, it is important to have an open dialogue and a conversation about the pros, cons, the data, and about what we are doing. Ultimately, our goal, hopefully, is to help everybody who is affected by any ailment or disease. Don't forget to check out my website, chadinabhan.com. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Martin Luther King Jr. A genuine leader is not a searcher for consensus, but a molder of consensus. Until next time, take care.